0: Big news out of Minnesota today, Mm. Hormel Foods, they announced a launch of the breathable bacon face mask. They call it a revolutionary face mask featuring the latest in pork scented technology.
1: (laughs) Pork scented technology. (laughs) Is that a thing? Apparently
0: it is. It's available for free through October 28th and for every request they're going to donate a free meal to Feeding America. Okay. But they say here that because the CDC is advising people to wear masks everywhere that you want to make sure that the familiar and comforting smell of bacon goes with you everywhere you go.
1: I and mean, I just feel like everybody else is going to constantly like wonder if there's like a Denny's close by. Welcome to Touchpoint a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, health systems, and physicians' practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information with you and have fun along the way. Now, here are your hosts. And welcome to episode number 194 of Touchpoint. I'm Reed Smith. That's
0: Chris Boyer. Hey, Reed. Welcome from uh, snowy Minnesota. It actually snowed today.
1: What? Really? Snowed? Yeah, that's fall in Minnesota, I suppose. Not snowing here. Probably won't at all. But certainly uh, that seems a little early. But, uh, you know, whatever. Well, thanks everybody for, for tuning in. Back for another week, another episode. We would encourage you, if you would... To do us a favor, we'd love it if you would subscribe to the podcast. If you have not already, you can do that really anywhere that you're currently listening to this. So we would appreciate the subscribe. While you're there, maybe rate and review us. We love that as marketers, certainly. Like the little reviews, like the star ratings. If we don't get a five, uh, we'll get replaced as show host, I think. That's how that works. (laughs) Please write and review while you're there. Also, touchpoint.health is the website where you'll find out more about this particular episode that you're listening to, the show that you're listening to, but also there is more than a dozen other shows also there. On different parts of the healthcare world. So be sure to check those out. One in particular, I want to make reference to is The Source by the American Telemedicine Association. So this is a show that we helped produce and come out with over the last, I don't know, handful of months or so. And uh, you'll find uh, a number of really cool episodes there and also kind of ties into today's topic a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if you will take a minute, go check it out surf over there and subscribe to some of those other shows. We're going to take a brief pause, and then we'll be back with uh, today's show. Chris, in today's digital age, your online reputation, as we all know, is crucial. With customers relying on online reviews, your first impression is also compared directly with your competitors'.
0: Sure is. And read. consider this. 86% of patients today read online reviews and 73% demand that that healthcare provider has a
1: minimum four-star rating. Demand. They demand it. Yeah, they do. Well, to stand out, choose reputation to help amplify your brand and to build trust. Be the provider of choice in your area, understand patient sentiment, get actionable insights, and even foster patient loyalty. And
0: look, here's the easy way you could do that. All you need to do is go visit reputation.com slash touchpoint. That's reputation.com slash touchpoint, where you can download their healthcare online reputation management guide and build a reputation that performs for you. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic that we seem to have been talking about a lot over these past Eight months or whatever, however long we've been in the pandemic, dealing with the pandemic here, unprecedented times. Yeah, in the unprecedented times, and that's virtual and telehealth. And it's interesting you you mentioned that we just released a new show from the American Telemedicine Association on our network. In fact, Ann Mon Johnson who is president of the ATA, is actually going to be interviewed later on in today's show.
1: It is going to be a great conversation, certainly. I don't know that there's really anyone uh, that probably has a better view, certainly on the industry of virtual care, telehealth. And they're not new. You know, For those that, that maybe are not familiar, the American Telemedicine Association certainly is not a new organization. And so uh, looking forward to having her instill some wisdom here in just a bit.
0: Another reason why we're addressing this topic today, Reed, is because in the previous week, there was some recent expansions announced in reimbursements for telehealth, which we're going to get into. And there's also been a lot of discussion around something that we recently, the last show we did about telehealth, about the hype cycle of telehealth, that there's a lot of discussion about, and we may be moving out of the hype cycle and actually getting into the maturity of the technology. So we figured it was like a good time for us to maybe revisit this topic because it's ever changing as we speak.
1: First article we're going to kind of dive into is from healthcarefinancenews.com. And it's uh, exactly what you just mentioned. CMS will reimburse for 11 new telehealth services during the public health emergency.
0: These recent additions, these 11 new services, CMS kind of manages uh, the coverage of Medicare, what what Medicare will cover it. These changes are going to ent- begin paying the eligible practitioners a- almost immediately. And for the duration of the public health emergency, or as this article calls it, the PHE, look at that, another three-letter
1: Another. There it is. <laughs> Somebody ring the bell. I need like a bell or something that I can hit. Every time
0: these new telehealth services include certain ones, you know, they get all the way from neural stimulator analysis, which I guess is great to know through a telehealth platform, you can do that programming services, cardiac and even pulmonary rehabilitation services.
1: Absolutely. They also talk a little bit about CMS providing additional support to state Medicaid and children's uh, health insurance programs or CHIP agencies. And that's in their effort to expand access to the virtual or telehealth through the release of a new supplement to its state Medicaid and CHIP telehealth toolkit. So why does this matter? Well, first of all, I think
0: it's a big sign for CMS to continue to expand telehealth measures there were temporary measures were in place but moving them to a permanent status allows for the ability for reimbursement to occur at a parity level with other types of care and i think that's really important because when we adopt any kind of new technology the reimbursement if it's at parity with other services that kind of reinforces the fact that telehealth is a real valid service right
1: yeah it absolutely does what's the number 34.5 million services delivered via telehealth. And that's just Medicaid and CHIP beneficiaries. They are talking here, they, they've got a number in here that's like you get to these percentage points and it almost doesn't seem real. But it says that that represents an increase of more than 2,600% when comparing to the same period from the prior year. So that's almost going from like zero to like anything. Such a large leap forward to the same period the year before. It's kind of amazing to think about. The people that are using these services with, when you talk about Medicaid, CHIP, through CMS,
0: these are people, adults age 19 through 64, they're receiving these services via telehealth. This represents a larger trend that we're seeing that kind of, again, plays into this fact that this is maturing as a technology.
1: I think it was a forceful maturation because you know we had to do it, right? I mean, this is one of those things that we've pushed for this for a long time. Certainly, we as an industry talked about telehealth and virtual care for a long time. But until people would always be like, oh, yeah, that is cool. I'm heading to my physician's office, you know, kind of a thing. Right. And so then we got into a place where you had to do it and turns out people liked it as we've talked about on some of the Girard studies and and whatnot. And so, yeah, I mean, I think it is certainly uh, it's, it's matured and I think it will continue. Certainly we had a huge inflection point. Uh, It's going to come back down and start planing out a little bit, but yeah, absolutely.
0: So now that makes a total of what? 144 services that go anywhere from ED visits, inpatient visits, uh, nursing facility visits, day management services. I mean, that is a widespread of people that are now covered through these telehealth services. So let's talk about the maturation of this read. We found another article on healthaffairs.com that is called Establishing a Value-Based New Normal for Telehealth. When we start talking about technology being value-based, we know it's getting mature.
1: They point out a few things in here. First thing they talk about is two major areas that need to be addressed to what they say find value in telehealth tools. And the first one is the infrastructure, as you would imagine. They say there's a pressing need to clarify the infrastructure demands. Think about things like wireless broadband they are required to support you know, the equitable care delivery of telehealth technologies. So social determinants of health might include broadband. So like if, if people are in rural uh, or underserved areas and they don't have access to good Internet service, some of these things just can't work.
0: It impacts a lot of different things and, it, and really being able to understand that infrastructure access will enable measurement of access and clinical outcomes, patient satisfaction and expenditures, right? I mean, if we're talking about truly maturing a technology, we have to make sure it's available to a lot of people. The second piece they also highlight is that finding value, the term value here is becoming very important. And what does that mean? It means health outcomes achieved per dollar spent. And that's vitally important to inform decision-making of these tools.
1: So it's a lot like ROI. They go into some other policy considerations. So there's the socioeconomic barriers. Talked a little bit about that. But the, they pose significant hurdles to equitable delivery. So given the association between poverty and telehealth unreadiness, and this strategy would promote uh, health equality. That's kind of the next logical policy approach
0: is, is really trying to address that. And that's tied into a lot of public health policy measures that are being considered too. Another one is around payment reform. Okay, yeah, we talked about 11 new procedures being covered, but that's still within this PHE, right? The public health emergency. Once we designate that public health emergency is done, which doesn't look like it's anytime soon, but still, we need to preserve those payment reform initiatives to make them more substantial. And they even go so far as to say, looking at population-based or episode-based bundled payment methods will further support development and implementation of telehealth-specific quality metrics. Never thought about it that way before, but it makes a lot of sense.
1: Next one they talk about here on the list is uh, leveraging a value-based insurance design, or VBIT. I like that. Yeah, I like that. i director of VBID or something like that. Anyway, so initially this, they say, is conceptualized as a mechanism to align patient out-of-pocket cost with the value of services delivered. Hmm. I'm going to say that again. Align patient out-of-pocket cost with the value of services delivered. How about that?
0: Wow, that sounds very heady and important to do. And that definitely will reinforce value for sure.
1: Does this also is like, you know, I pay less if they don't have good Yelp scores? (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, no, I'm taking this off track now. Another policy measure
0: that they actually put forward into this article is how you could use telehealth to support population health initiatives. Reimbursement policies should incentivize telehealth enabled monitoring and capacity building models to enhance that access to specialty care for hospitals and health facilities through F QHCs or you know rural and underserved communities. Imagine that, right? Um, formally inculcating telehealth into your population health initiatives, that suddenly will certainly reinforce the uh, the value of what telehealth could be in this in this world.
1: A final policy consideration, protect against fraud and abuse, which again makes sense. So um, the pandemic experience should be leveraged, they say, to further develop CPI predictive analytics and proactively identify fraud, waste abuse.
0: What they're really painting here is a a broader picture around how to bring value to telehealth, is making it more than just a hype technology, but really making it part of the care modality. Now, this article is very detailed. There's a lot of things in here. They go into research techniques and models to apply to continue measuring value of telehealth. And honestly, if you're within a health system or know people within a health system that are kind of looking at establishing some kind of value-based metrics around telehealth initiatives that you're doing, I certainly would recommend following that link in the show notes. Reid, why don't we do this? After the break, why don't we come back and start to imagine what the future could look like with telehealth as being part of now the standard day of care in a very mature world. Coming soon from Greystone, Bowstring and Touchpoint Media, live from HCIC, a new podcast that brings you front row access to the latest innovative strategies that are shaping tomorrow's healthcare industry. Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting platform. This podcast series is brought to you by Greystone.net, Bowstring, and Touchpoint Media.
1: All right, so now let's imagine, if you will, what the future of care would look like. First article we're going to take a look at is titled, How Virtual Health Landscape Will Shift in a Post-COVID World. This is part of biztimes.com.
0: That's a local paper that actually um, Advocate Health, a spokesperson at Advocate Health, talking about their telehealth initiative, kind of outlined a good framework that they're using to think about the future of telehealth. We thought it was kind of interesting to bring up the three ways that they outline what this could look like in the the digital health revolution.
1: Absolutely. So the first one they talk about is by helping the chronically ill, They talk about the fact that many people today seek telemedicine appointments for lower acuity type problems. You know, I can think of this as like well checks for kids or you got the earache or probably flu or strep or something like that. You know, things that that could be assessed and evaluated uh, virtually. In the future, people that they talk about the future uh, may be more like around the idea that people who have more complex issues will use virtual care to stay convenient and regular contact with their clinicians. So, you know, as that acuity goes up or the chronic illness part, you know, it is an interesting way that. Uh, Sometimes the barrier is the back and forth or going to the physical location. Now, in an episode in the past, the telehealth tech
0: stack episode that we did, we talked about the different types of telehealth. It's not just these virtual physician visits. They even go forth to say, you know, using digital health tools like remote patient monitoring, et cetera, to monitor vital signs like blood pressure, heart rates, oxygen levels of patients in their homes. That's going to continue to advance. And I'm sure that, you know, with a new Apple announcement next year with the Apple iPhone 13, they're probably going to have like a a number of added health related technologies. And it's not just Apple, right? Every, we're seeing this health tech boom that's happening. Advancing virtual care into the home is going to be a, a huge part of this. And then in addition, right, they're talking about advancing virtual care into behavioral health and well-being. They even say here, could you imagine using telehealth as part of a support group with online Alcoholics Anonymous or diabetes management sessions? Now, I could see that, right? I I actually could see a lot of value. Again, it resonates with me as a diabetic, but still, I could see this being valuable for anybody dealing with some chronic conditions.
1: Well, because convenience is such an important part. A lot of things we do that aren't maybe our most favorite things to do but you're not really against it in your daily life are made possible because they're convenient. I mean, you think about things even like pay at the pump at the gas station or whatever. It's like, I oh, don't go in there and stand in line and pay and this, that, and the other. So in the early days, it's just like people would stop at gas stations that had pay at the pump versus ones that didn't. And that was like an advertising piece, right? Because of the convenience piece. And this, this is part of that, especially, you know, for those again, the convenient regular contact with clinicians and things like that.
0: A second part of the framework here is is around the concept of keeping people healthy. And of course, we couldn't talk about overall health without talking about telehealth use in behavioral health. And there's been a lot of movement in that regard. Um, the VA is moving very heavily into this space using telehealth in practice within the Veterans Administration, you know, in fact, my neighbor, he works in the behavioral health world at the local VA here. And he's doing more and more of these teleconsults with people. We see that happening. And you know, there's always also read, right, we see a lot of these for profit models where you can pay like five bucks to have, you know, 15 minutes with a therapist or something like that, that are not tied to a health system.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's apps around that. And you know, a lot of those offerings via maybe your corporate provider, Provided health insurance plan, so payers are even in that space. And finally, the third point that they have here is by helping you stay organized. The ease of appointment scheduling, for example, or bill pay, plus the ability to review your test results and uh, you know message back and forth, two-way communications, if you will, with uh, your providers, or your care team.
0: This sounds like it extends the electronic medical record or the patient portal so to mm-hmm, speak
1: mm-hmm.
0: to now have this interface now imagine that you're logging into your like your my chart or whatever it might be and you could right there launch into a virtual consult with your doctor or a nurse provider or nurse practitioner for example to maybe say i got my lab results but i need you to help me walk through it that would be tremendously convenient and then extending it even further aligning your needs and personal preferences when and where it's convenient. And I think about this, Reid, when, you know, even when we interact with our friends and our family, we use multiple different ways to communicate with each other. Like with you and I, we text each other, we email each other, we Slack each other, et cetera. Could you imagine extending virtual health in such a way that you're using all these different modalities in order to stay engaged with various expanded care team that's behind the screen, so to speak?
1: Makes total sense. Um, one last thing before we
0: get to that really great interview. There's another last article. It's a little bit brief. It's on telehealth.org, but it talks about something that I think you and I can maybe envision a little bit, read here as the future, which is hybrid telehealth, telehealth combined with in-person healthcare. I get that concept, don't you?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I'm going to make some assumptions here, but you know, there's times where you're going to need to go in and there's times where virtual check-in is totally appropriate. So they say here that, that hybrid telehealth refers to the combination of telehealth and in-person healthcare. I mean, this isn't a huge stretch, right? And that ideally the purpose would be that there's some sort of synergy with that in-person care. And the
0: important part of this is, is that as we've talked about before, Telehealth is a technology, and ultimately, there's a human factor in care. And they put forward here that the human factor remains the core of telehealth success. And we've talked about this, and even uh, Dr. V, who has a podcast on our network, you should go check it out. He's talked about this before as well. Is that the providers today have not been trained on telehealth on using telehealth, and so. You want to be able to cross that chasm with the providers as well. Being able to establish and maintain a therapeutic relationship between the doctor and the patient is critical. And it's even more important in like when we talk about whole person care or behavioral health care, along with medical health care, so to speak.
1: I mean, don't don't we feel like this is realistically where things will just end up? In this hybrid model, we talk about the fact that back in the day, it was like house calls and that kind of deal, right? And then it was like, no, no, now you're going to go to the doctor. And I think just the way care delivery is evolving and just the way people and consumerism and digital is part of people's lives now. I don't know how we don't just end up in a place where it's not even referred to as hybrid telehealth. It's not even referred to as telehealth or virtual care. It's just care. And some of it is online and through apps and technology. And some of it is in person. And, you know, it's just kind of what it is. And it's almost like you get your own custom care plan. So I just don't know how this isn't just what it is at some point. I think you're right.
0: I think we're still in that sort of newness phase. And we're still, like we talked about a couple episodes ago, right? we're evolving out of the hype cycle, so to speak. We're not yet there at the maturity. But I mean, think about this, though when the pandemic hit, for many of us, we weren't familiar with Zoom video calls, right? But we eventually, I would hazard a guess that probably everybody listening in has done a Zoom call now, right? At mm-hmm. Now we're eight months in. Remember the first time you actually use Zoom, you're like, you're not sure what buttons to push. You're not sure what's right. You're always on the mute button. You have to unmute yourself, all of those things. And you're kind of experimenting and kind of learning along the way. I think we such a high impetus on having the care setting be sacred, so to speak, that kind of experimentation seems a little clunky and inappropriate for that care intervention, whatever it might be. And so maybe we're still a little bit hesitant about, you know, experimenting. Well, what would it look like if I accidentally, you know, am talking to my doctor in portrait mode versus horizontal mode, right? Or landscape mode or whatever it might be. Or what if my doctor is talking to me and they're on mute? How do I let them know? You know, that sort of thing. But we'll get there.
1: We'll get there, right? I think so. I mean, ultimately, we're just going to end up, (laughs) you know, it's like, I don't know that we have a choice, right? I think it's just the current is moving that way. And that's just where we'll find ourselves. To your point, the iPhone 13 may have features built in or whatever, you know, uh, I think that's just kind of where we find ourselves.
0: This reminds me of the conversations that you and I had way, way back when, when we were uh, talking about social media and healthcare, and we were saying, well, no, no one's going to be doing social media in healthcare. And we had always had to convince people that eventually it's going to become second nature. Well, it's become second nature now. So telehealth will be just like that. Maybe in 10 years, we'll look back and say, do you remember that time when we were talking about telehealth as a separate thing? Anyway, with that, why don't we turn to our interview? I recently sat down with Ann Mon Johnson, who's the CEO of the American Telemedicine Association, and we talked about the state of telemedicine. Now, this was part of the virtual summit or the Forum for Healthcare Strategists meeting a little over a month ago, maybe two months ago now. We actually had a conversation there. It's still a relevant conversation because Ann Mon Johnson really has a pulse on what's happening in telemedicine. And that's why she's doing a podcast on her network. You want to talk a little bit about that, that before we go to the interview, Reed?
1: Another uh, host on our network, Greg Matthews, host of Data Point, has uh, done a show on the network for some years, actually has a relationship there as well, and has co-hosted and hosted a number of uh, interviews uh, for the American Telemedicine Association and been involved with their conference. Uh, even last year, he had some special Data Point-specific episodes that came out. I guess, in the spring of 2019, that would have been. Uh, So for this time around, obviously, with things being virtual, they decided to leverage that opportunity and, I guess, spur some of those conversations into podcast form. We find those now on our network. They've been pushing those around for a few months. We've recently added them to our website over at touchpoint.health. But the show is a show in and of itself, not episodes of another show. Uh, But it's called uh, The Source by the ATA. So be sure to check that out over at touchpoint.health.
0: But before you do,
1: hang on. After the break, we're going to come back and have a really in-depth
0: conversation with Anne Johnson herself, which would be a good precursor before you go and binge listen to all of uh, the, The Source podcast. So we'll do that right after this break.
1: Telemedicine
0: is on a lot of our minds and it's really a topic of conversation that are very important to the people that are attending the virtual summit. And today I'm excited to have a special guest, to have a deep conversation about that. And I'm excited that we're able to sit down, welcome.
2: Thank you, thank you, it's great to be here. Do you
0: mind sharing a little bit about yourself, your background and, and, and share you know, what, your, what role you play in your current organization?
2: So my background is uh, for many years I was working with small and early stage companies, a number of startups, all in healthcare. Uh, The last three were focused on using healthcare data to help consumers navigate the healthcare system. So I think that in saying that, it's acknowledging that healthcare has always been a little bit complicated for us. And I then uh, decided to move to D.C. from Chicago, where I'd spent most of my career, and ended up getting recruited to run the ATA, the American Telemedicine Association. So I've been with the organization just over two years, and as they say, timing is everything. It's just an incredible opportunity we have as an industry, and it's really um, an uncommon time that I think we can use to everyone's advantage, especially Americans.
0: Yeah, you might say they're unprecedented times that we've been living through, and it right. it's almost. I hear a lot of people refer to the pandemic as the as opening up the era, or maybe even the golden age of telemedicine. So, um, let's talk a little bit about the current state of of telehealth and telemedicine in the United States.
2: Sure. So, I think you're you know, and everyone who's listening knows that the amount of activity in telehealth has been as you said, unprecedented. I mean, we're looking at data on utilization that showed between the beginning of the year uh, up until week 17, I mean, the surge was enormous, 11,000% increase in Medicare, I think it was. And particularly if you look at the same period of time over last year. But what's interesting now is that the, um, the utilization has dropped and it's not as high as it was before, it's not as low as it was before. So you're seeing it average out to about 30 to 40% of of what it was at the peak of the pandemic, which I think is interesting because once we get past all the conversations about the boom and the surge and the amount of activity that happened, we're going to start drilling down into the data of what worked and why that was important and what made a difference
0: yeah i've I've heard you know i've i've I often heard it being equated to the Gartner hype cycle and that there was a little bit of a hype around the pandemic and then um, you know and it's been a drop off and a lot of that may be based on how consumers are you know viewing the platform because we know that there's many key stakeholders, but the consumers' patients are the actual users of the platforms so do you mind let's take a few minutes to dive into uh, the perception that we we're finding from people that are using these tools because Telemedicine's not new, it's been around for years, yet it's being utilized you know, much more lately. So what, what have you seen?
2: So I think it's safe to say that pre-pandemic, when I joined the ATA, although the tools and resources that were available to people, I mean, had been available for over 25 years, the uptake by both consumers and clinicians was quite low and well under 20% of the available population. And um, so what happened was that a lot of utilization was done by consumers on direct to consumer products and these they could access either through their health plan or through their employer. But there was also a growing number of digital first companies that were out there that were providing telehealth to people who really appreciated the convenience Um, the ability to just text or communicate with their physician when they want it. And of course, there's always the example of Kaiser that was using it quite pervasively. Um, But what we found during the pandemic, number one, is that consumers were frightened. They didn't know where to go. They didn't know if the symptoms they had were related to COVID. And so What they did was that they ended up using telehealth because they were told to stay away from the emergency room. And a number of um, systems, delivery systems, actually put in place um, chat first or interactive assessments for consumers so they could screen themselves and basically figure out whether or not they had symptoms that were consistent with COVID. And I think, you know, those telehealth tools, which is what they are, really saved a lot of delivery systems It enabled them to scale in a way that they hadn't before. And so that was really quite remarkable. From a consumer's perspective, perception, I think pre-pandemic, it was very much um, for many consumers, it was a convenience factor. It was for consumers who were, um, had better income, for example, because they had insurance products. And we can talk about some of the limitations of telehealth pre-pandemic with Medicaid populations. But then, post during the pandemic, what we found was that there was um people were pleasantly surprised I mean it's a great study that the Hartford Foundation did with uh, older Americans seventy and older who were using telehealth for the first time, and honestly, they thought it was as good if not better than face to face and this is coming from an older population. so I think people were pleasantly surprised, and I think what we're going to see going forward is that consumers didn't understand how they could use it. We always knew from the research that if they were encouraged to use it and they used it, they would be very happy with it. But now they felt like they had to use it because they didn't have any other choice. And then what they did was they did use it and they were pleasantly surprised. And I think that what we'll find is that as we move forward, if it's taken away from them, I think they're going to be quite frankly indignant. So we're working to make sure that
0: yeah, I kind of colloquially call it that the telemedicine toothpaste is out of the tube now, and we all know how to use these tools. And I think that's, that's reflective of all the other digital tools in our, in our lives as consumers now, right? Now that we are using Zoom and doing these virtual conferences and things as well. But on the other side of the screen, uh, there's also an important stakeholder that's part of this conversation. Which are those providers that are actually uh, providing, you know, their services through these platforms? And um, I, I'd be interested to to, sh- uh, for, to hear from you. You know, prior to the pandemic, that's been a, there was a great resistance about introducing these tools or using telemedicine or, as platforms. Um, how do you see their perspective has changed?
2: So I think that the resistance as you called it was not consistent across the provider population mm. and again I think what we've learned is that number one providers in some instance felt like they were not properly trained that they were not properly equipped to do telehealth um, and that in many instances they had to make it up on their own but then you have systems like Providence and Intermountain and Avera eCare that are really focused on doing telehealth, and they were part of that cohort that just rolled out hundreds and thousands of physicians within a small period of time and did it very well. Um, you have physician practices that likewise went from in-person, face-to-face, to virtual over the course of a weekend. and they are likewise very surprised at how well it's went. So I think that we owe it to providers to make it as easy as possible for them. Um, We also owe it to them to ensure that they have the support, the training, that they're using the right resources. We know that during the pandemic there was a relaxation of um, enforcement of HIPAA guidelines and, and as an association the ATA feels really strongly that that's you know, we're very concerned about privacy and data security and confidentiality as our providers. So we want to make sure that those sort of waivers and relaxation, if you will, of the, the regulations don't stick. But I think the other with the providers is that, you know, they it, it varied by um, practice, by, uh, you know, specialty. Um, there were some practices that had been very much virtual prior to the pandemic. So, again, it'll be interesting to see as we go through the data what has held true versus what hasn't.
0: Right. Yeah. And and I want to get into, you know, the kind of the expansion of the utilization of tele, telemedicine mm-hmm. because I think that, that that's an important differentiator. Because um, you're right, there was even, I worked in a health system for many years, and we always thought telemedicine was sort of like the entry point, right, in, into the health system, and that would refer into a primary care. Yet, yet, I see now that many organizations are starting to think about this in a more, more holistic way, even expanding tele- telemedicine into their care pathways for very complex uh, service lines like oncology, cancer treatments, cardiology. Are you seeing the same?
2: Absolutely. And I think that the the bias that we've had Mm -hmm. historically is getting shook. And in other words, we cannot think of it as the front door. We have to think of virtual services as meeting consumers where they are and helping them access in whatever way makes the most sense. Mm -hmm. And so with care management, with companies like Livongo, which – Just yesterday it was announced that they were acquired or merged with Teladoc Health. Um, we're, We're seeing that that sort of engagement with consumers and meeting them where they are is something that we know holds true for any other sector, any other industry, and we can make it work in healthcare as well
0: yeah absolutely. and I think another bias that we might have had is that uh the usage of telemedicine to reach let's say disparate uh rural areas in in certain in geographies um that that was a really good uh, application of these tools. yet I think the pandemic has proven as well that you can you can actually connect more effectively with people that are right in your own backyard isn't that true?
2: Yeah, I think that that one of the things that we miss is that prior to the pandemic, we had an enormous problem with access in the U.S., mm-hmm. and there was huge variation not only in access but in cost and quality. And mm-hmm. so, you very much your ge- geography was very much your healthcare destiny. And what happened is that that was just shown to be amplified, and the toll of it was much more dramatic than any of us had ever anticipated, or perhaps many of us had anticipated. So it's incumbent on us now, as we think about the waivers and the things that need to change in terms of regulation and legislation, the first thing that we have been advocating for is the elimination of the originating site. So this idea that you cannot discriminate against against providing services based on where someone lives, I think is the best way to put it. And because we know pre-pandemic, that, as you suggested, Chris, there are a lot of medical deserts out there in the middle of Chicago or Washington, D.C., and you think of a mom trying to get her child to a clinic and it takes a couple of bus rides and a transfer and so forth, that's onerous. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think that that that's something that has really, uh, the visibility has really been raised, and quite frankly, it's going to be incumbent on all of us to help change that.
0: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, the a, another thing that I see as uh, maybe sometimes confusing or muddling the the equation here is there's this entrant um, of the, many of these retailers, you mentioned, retail third party organizations that are applying or are providing telemedicine, Teladoc and Livongo being you know two two great examples of those. And that can potentially see, be seen as like a, a different type of uh, telehealth than one that you might get from your health system. What are you seeing in terms of that the differentiator between retail versus maybe a health system delivered telemedicine?
2: Well, I think that what's happened is that the retail providers of services have really taken a page from the marketing handbooks of the best and the most successful companies out there. And again, it's this concept of making it very easy for people to interact with them. Um, you see that particularly in the direct-to-consumer asynchronous companies like Hims and Hers and Roe, where it's just very easy. And they're doing medicine and healthcare differently than perhaps the way we've been steeped. Uh, so I think that that what we're going to have to acknowledge is that first of all, it's going to be up to the clinician and the uh, patient. In terms of what's the best way to treat them and make that readily available so that we deal with issues of connectivity and broadband and not only have the ability to connect people, but to give them the equipment to do so. Mm -hmm. So um, again, when you think about how many people, Medicaid populations, 95% have a phone and yet because of some arcane regulations from the Consumer Protection Act, you can't proactively text them. That needs to change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Medicare, Medicaid providers, the plans need to be enabled differently than they have been.
0: Yes, certainly, certainly. I mean, these digital health tools and the and the equity around uh, accessing these digital health tools is is a critical piece of this. Um, and and while the technology has evolved and rapidly evolved and accessible to many of us, it seems like the 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 regulations themselves need to kind of play catch up. Is that fair?
2: Right. No, that's absolutely true. And I think the other thing that happened during the pandemic, and is still playing out, is. We've historically talked about the need to reimagine care and use technology to replace, do more than replace a face-to-face visit. And nowhere has that been more evident than the whole movement to remote care and remote monitoring. And the use of technology to help people stay at home or their home as, you know, I think it's hospital shifts to the home as Phillips talks about it, or even Um, you know, companies that provide home care like Matrix Medical, what they did was shift their business from in-person to virtual over the course of the pandemic in a very short period of time because people were afraid to leave the house. They didn't want strangers who they didn't know whether or not they were exposed to to the virus. So remote monitoring has just been an incredible godsend, and I think we're going to see a lot more movement with that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, so it would be remiss of us not to talk about um, some of the perspectives of the people that are listening and, and and watching us today, which are the marketing and communications professionals that are within the health systems. And so if you're comfortable, I'd, I'd love to talk a little bit about uh, how do you feel the role that marketers and communicators, and, and this could include physician relations, can play in helping to maybe shift the, the perspective and adoption of these tools?
2: Well. Again, you have to make it easy for people to access them. So one thing that we've become very aware of and very sensitive to is the notion of, you know, not everybody speaks English. Mm -hmm. And if they're Spanish speaking, there are different variations or um, cultures surrounding that. Um, And of course you have California and other parts of the country where you have large Asian populations. So being able to communicate with people readily in their language, I think, is something that health systems have struggled with and they'll continue to struggle with. I'd like to think that technology is going to make it easier for them going forward. The second thing um, is that, again, this is a bias of the industry in terms of physicality. So we have this idea, I think clinicians and, and consumers, many of them, or some of them at least, believe that you have to lay hands to understand what's going on with someone. And yet, you also have clinicians who will say that 70% of what they need to know, they can get through an audio-only consultation or audio-video. So I think that's interesting and and something that we're going to have to acknowledge in how we talk about and how we pursue relations from a community-based perspective. And then the third point I'd make is that you know, we have an edifice complex. We like our buildings. We want them to be fantastic. And I bet Neiman Marcus like their buildings too, but that's changing. So I think that, you know, this whole experience between people giving and receiving services is under an incredible transformation. And I think quite frankly, the marketing communications folks at Delivery Systems are gonna be critical to understanding what the needs are in their community and how to best reach them. I think it's an exciting time. I think it's scary, but I think it's also exciting.
0: Yeah, and, and I also believe, and, and help me, you know, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong, there are multiple different types of now telemedicine solutions available, and it's not like sort of a one-size-fits-all. You mentioned some re- remote patient monitoring, virtual consults, chats, you know, they're asynchronous. And I think that uh, helping to to maybe outline and navigate and, and and share with with the various audiences, the consumers, patients, which are the best solutions is is that fair?
2: Sure. So I think that um, first of all, when uh, I started with the ATA, mm-hmm. I think telemedicine, telehealth had sort of um, uh, definitions that were you know at a level of specificity because of regulations and legislation that were lost on most of the population and so we set out to really broadly embrace the notion that when services are provided from a patient to uh, between a provider and a patient or even a consultation between a provider and another provider and they're not in the same place and technology facilitates that that's telemedicine as far as i'm concerned or telehealth So it's telehealth, telemedicine, digital, virtual, MP, digital therapy. I mean, it's the whole enchilada, if you will. And so I think that what we found is in that broad definition that you have things like asynchronous, you know, the fact that people are using chat or some sort of interactive assessment. You have synchronous, which is what we're doing right now. And also synchronous includes audio only, which has proven to be very effective for many populations, particularly those that may only have bare cell coverage and no Wi-Fi at all. And then remote monitoring, which, again, saw some real progress at the end of last year because the new codes that had been released. So remote monitoring, again, being able to ass- assess a patient state without actually laying hands on them or laying eyes on them and allowing them to stay home. I think the other thing that's been very interesting is the whole use of AI in this. So um, we know that AI has powered a lot of this in terms of decision trees that um, help interact, you know, help uh, exchange go faster or more accurately. But you also have really proven applications for example, diabetic retinopathy. And that, that didn't happen during the pandemic, that happened pre-pandemic. And so I think that again, telehealth or virtual health has historically been considered second-class medicine perhaps in many circles, and that's just not the case.
0: Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, as our lives have changed with this pandemic and, and forced us to be become more virtual, just like we are today, um, it 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 it's provided an ample opportunity for the various solutions to come to the forefront and and really empower and improve the way we deliver care. Is that fair? Yeah. Well, yeah. it
2: it improves our ability to deliver care. And yeah. again, pre-pandemic we did not have enough clinicians. Uh, the example I often use is telemental health, where an abundance, a majority of counties in the U.S. did not have mental health specialists, and yet. We knew one out of five Americans had a, had a mental health issue. So the best way to deal with that is behavioral health delivered virtually. So, again, and that's been proven true with the pandemic.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, I know
0: that the organization that you 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 were a part of, the American Telemedicine Association, is an incredible resource of information. Uh, that 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 I I've learned a lot from um, by participating not only in conversations you've had, you've been on a number of other podcasts and other things. But um, can you share a little bit more about what ATA, the mission, and how how uh, people that are listening in maybe can participate and be and learn more?
2: Absolutely. Well. We have been very busy on the policy and advocacy side, as well as on tools and resources, because as an association, there's a lot of value that we can provide to our members across a number of different dimensions. So on the policy and advocacy side, I'm pretty sure a number of your listeners um, signed on to a letter that we helped pull together with a few other stakeholders that was to congressional leadership. Um, And what was unique about that letter was two things. One was 340 organizations signed on, which is pretty significant. And then the second thing about the letter is that we had four specific asks. So there was no platitude, pablum, none of that. It was, these are the things that have to happen for us not to go over the telehealth cliff. And we're gonna continue on that front and uh, have launched a campaign as an association with many of our members and partners to ensure that the gains that we've made stick. And that's at the federal level as well as at the state level because there's a lot that you know takes place at the state level. Um, And then likewise, the tools and resources. We basically opened up our treasure trove of resources, practice guidelines, how to do certain things well, how to do them better, behavioral health, ocular health, dermatology. These are all practice guidelines that have been put together by the members of the ATA and really codifying, if you will, how to do this correctly. Um, And so I encourage your listeners to happen to those resources. And I encourage them to engage in the conversations with us. We have a lot of things that we're doing. We are very eager to convene people because I think that the more we stick together in this, the more likely we're going to be successful in ensuring that every American gets care where and when they need it. And that when they do, they know it's safe, effective, and appropriate. And that's really what we're trying to do.
0: Well, Ann, that that's really inspiring and powerful, and, and this conversation has been really great. I wanna thank you so much for your time today and, and uh, sharing your great expertise, thanks.
2: Thank you so much, Chris, it was a pleasure.
1: All right, and welcome back and thank you again. To Ann Mond Johnson for coming on the show, talking a little bit about telehealth. Uh, again, like I said early on, I'm not sure that there's anyone else that probably has a better feel for uh, you know what's happening in this space. So, really fortunate to uh, have her on the show. Uh, again, few conferences coming up. We've got uh, the Smash Conference, of course, and then uh, HCIC at Home, which is this year's uh, iteration of the Healthcare Internet Conference. If you uh, aren't familiar uh, certainly hcic.net also sign up for the tps report which is our weekly email where we have links to all of these fun things and uh, be sure to uh, be sure to sign up i'm sure there'll be a lot of great, great content we'll be involved doing some podcasting it's always a good time recommendations what do you uh what are you recommending today
0: well read in the spirit of uh the topic du jour the topic we're talking about today yes uh, i have found an app that is a wellness related app That uh, is actually, um, it's not necessarily telehealth in nature. There's no one on the other side, but it's very much based on some really interesting intelligence and I'll tell you about it. Okay. So first of all, it's called FitBod. It's a fitness app. And basically it's a free app in the uh, Apple store. I downloaded it. You go in and you actually put in your uh, profile, like what your age is, what your weight is, um, and what your fitness goal is, what you're trying to accomplish. And then it also you put in um, all the equipment that you have in your home gym, for example, or wherever you're working out. Okay. And then it'll actually custom build fitness routines for you. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really interesting. And they change every time, right? So you do one and then the next day it changes and they go through various different Parts of your, you know, your, your body, if you're looking at weight training, if you're looking at losing weight or fitness and toning, so one day is a leg day and the next day is whatever. And it's custom built. It it tells you how many sets you should do, what the weights are, if you're using weights, that sort of thing built against your profile. And then you go through and you take it. And then depending on how you rate that particular circuit, because after every circuit, you could say, was that good? Was it too hard or whatever? it'll start to build a custom workout for you. You know, if you're working at home, I would strongly recommend to get this FitBot app totally free and try it out because I've been doing it now
1: for a week and I love it. Excellent recommendation. I am going to recommend uh, kind of more than one thing. Not really, but kind of. Have you ever bought anything off of an Instagram ad, like a random recommendation kind of ad?
0: Yeah, I felt like I was one of only a few that have. It sounds like you have too.
1: Yeah, I found just randomly kind of over the pandemic here. was on Instagram one day and there's a uh, apparel company called Legends Brand. So it's thelegendsbrand.com is the website. And it's it's uh, kind of active wear fitness workout type stuff. So it kind of couples with your recommendation a little bit. But they have shorts and shirts and hoodies and pants socks etc i've bought several of their shorts they've got liners built in you know the liner like holds your phone and you know different things like that but man they're, they're the greatest shorts i've really really enjoyed them I, i've got a couple of pairs of the luca shorts and uh, they make them in different colors and patterns and, and that kind of thing you can get them with different inseam lengths really great durable They've got some really cool hoodies and things like that Uh, look really great as well. So I would recommend that brand for sure.
0: Well, there you go. Now, isn't it you that says that nobody ever leaves Instagram? Looks like you are now.
1: Yeah, that's true. I may not have left it at the time, though. See, I may have just, I don't remember, honestly. (laughs) Well, I've been reading
0: stories that Instagram is slowly evolving into an online commerce site anyway. So um, I guess we'll we'll see how that plays out, huh? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Thanks again for joining us. Thanks again for uh, tuning in for another episode of Touchpoint. Again, touchpoint.health is the website. Rate, review, subscribe, wherever you happen to listen or stream. And for Chris Boyer, I'm Reed Smith, and we'll see you next week. This has been a Touchpoint Media production. To learn more about this show and others like it, please visit us online at touchpoint.health.